Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, assistant editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in African Studies. Today I'm speaking with Aaron Spencer Fogelman, who, along with his co-author, Robert Hansard, Associate Professor of History at Columbia College Chicago, created 500 African Voices, a catalog of published accounts by Africans enslaved in the transatlantic slave trade from 1586 to 1936. Aaron is a Distinguished Research Professor in the History Department at Northern Illinois University. This work from American Philosophical Society Press is a truly astonishing work featuring the thoughts and views of survivors of the transatlantic slave trade. This project is probably best understood as a digital humanities project. It is a research tool designed for students and anyone seeking out primary documents about the brutal experience of enslaved people. Aaron, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Thank you for having me. Of course. You know, before jumping into the work, I was wondering if you could just tell me a little bit about yourself and your co-author, Robert Hansard. Well, as you said, I'm an historian in the history department um, at Northern Illinois University. Years ago, Robert was a doctoral student there. That's how I know him so well. And uh, Robert uh, does Atlantic history as I do, but he is an Africanist. I am not an Africanist. So he is an Africanist who goes into the Atlantic world, and including North America, historically and studies things from that perspective, whereas I'm an historian of early America, Atlantic world, who tries to incorporate all aspects of it, of the region, including Africa. And uh, with this project, I've learned a great deal about Africa, but he is more of the Africanist expert than I am in many ways. And um, he wrote a dissertation years ago uh, about the transfer of uh, political culture from Akan peoples, especially in West Africa, to Jamaica and New York from the late 17th to the early 19th centuries, which is why I asked him to do this. I've written several books on transatlantic migrations, gender, religion, revolution, slavery, these sorts of things. 
And uh, when working on another project, I began coming across all of these African voices, as we call them, and realized there were a lot more than most people and even most scholars and specialists realized. So it seemed it would be a good idea to, to write this book. Do you give a, a brief overview of the book and how, uh, how how you sort of conceived of the project? It's it, We call them African voices. And the idea is when dealing with transatlantic slavery, we want to get at the perspectives of the people, uh, first of all, Africans, but not just Africans, uh, people who are essentially victims, people who were thrown on the slave ships. It's a lot of Africans were the merchants, uh, um, uh, monarchs and what sort of thing who were involved. And we, we have some perspective of them already, not enough, but some. And we had very little on the pers perspectives, what people said about their lives. A few and a growing number recently. But the idea was to to find as many of these voices as we could in all languages, uh, in all countries, in all regions of the Atlantic world, Europe, all of the Americas, the different parts of Africa, and uh, make them available. And the key and the hardest part really was to develop a criteria and then apply it. So it, it became about first finding examples of African voices and then deciding whether or not they belong in our body. And uh, we stuck rigorously to that criterion, and I think that's what makes it valuable. When you read or use this book, you, you, you need to read the introduction. It's very important, where it explains the criteria and many other things. But you really know what you have and what you don't have. So what were some of the... Uh the criteria that you used to determine what voices would be featured in this book? First and probably most important, it needed, the voice needed to be uh, from someone who was born in Africa. And almost all cases, not always, but almost all cases, they were born free. So it's someone who was born free and was thrown into slavery. They lost their freedom. So this excludes famous, important people like Frederick Douglass and Harriet Jacobs and many other people who were born in slavery somewhere in the Americas and wrote and published a slave narrative about it. So we're not including them. They're important in their own right, but we wanted the African element. Um, the other important criterion was that they told their story to someone and eventually that that uh, story needed to have been published. So we're not working with manuscripts and archives all over the Atlantic world. That would be too huge a project that, that that's not even feasible. So their account needs to have been published. It could have been published back in the day when they were enslaved. The publications we look at date back to the 18th century. It could also be a, a recent 
publication by a scholar. Some are very recent, 21st century. And the scholar was digging through legal or religious records of some sort and found an African voice and published it. And if that's the case, then we include it in our catalog. Uh, another important criteria is that uh, there's, there's mediation involved. That, that's normal with published accounts. There's editors involved, there's publishers, there's interviewers. Uh, but the, the mediation needed to be limited. We needed to be sure that we were hearing an African voice. And we were not getting some kind of summary or description by, you know, a European or someone else of what the African was doing or their activities or their thoughts about it. And there's a lot of that. So it was very difficult sometimes to sort that out. We, um, the, the interviewer needed to have spoken directly with the African and should have recorded whatever it was they said, and that somehow gets published. And it didn't really matter how long it was. Uh, a number of these accounts of the 500 are, are full-length books, but that's really just, that's just a small minority. Sometimes it's, it's just a couple of sentences, but if, it's, if it needed to reveal something about their life, either in Africa, on the slave ship, or at the destination, wherever they were taken. So if it reveals even in, in, in a couple of sentences something, the African voice telling something substantive about their life, and it gets published, then we include it. How did you go about collecting these interviews uh, or these voices? Obviously, 500 is a lot. Uh, you know, what, what were the archives like uh, when, you, when you were looking at them? Well, the key to that is not the archives, but these are published accounts. So what we were looking for were not manuscripts and archives, although sometimes archives helped us, um, but we were looking for published material, articles in periodicals, books, uh, pamphlets, and that sort of thing. So uh, we... We used various means to, to find that, like one often does when looking for published materials. It began with a search of a well-known collection of slave narratives, and they were published as well. There were hundreds of them. It's online. And um, an undergraduate assistant looked through it, it to find out which were people who were born in Africa. And it was a small minority, but it was over 50. And that alerted me to something there because most slavery scholars think that there may be 20 or 30 of these. Without trying very hard, with one undergraduate assistant looking in one place, we found over 50. And I thought that was very interesting. And then I began looking in a couple of other well-known collections and in no time at all, I had over a hundred, and that's when I realized this was so much larger than anyone realized that I needed to start a project to publish it. And so I kept looking and through um, 
well-known and not so well-known collections of slave narratives of all sorts or uh, document collections on the history of slavery or transatlantic slavery and that sort of thing. I began putting it together. Uh, I also began, I had, with the help of others, there were a number of assistants involved with this, um, um, contributed along the way. But we looked, for example, through British parliamentary papers related to the slave trade, especially in the first half of the 19th century when the British Navy was busy trying to intercept illegal slave ships taking people from Africa to Brazil or Cuba or somewhere else. Uh, they would intercept them and take most of them to Sierra Leone. And they produced a lot of documentation of that, including interviews of the Africans that they had um, liberated, as they put it. And uh, also modern scholarly editions. <clears throat> um, really beginning in the early 20th century, but especially in the late 20th century, people working on slavery would publish documents and many of those included African voices. So of the 490 voices that are featured in this collection, uh, can you give our listeners a sense of uh, maybe the broader demographic features of these people? Like, you know, when were they captured? How many were men? How many were women? What was in English or not in English? Um, whichever uh, features you think are most relevant for listeners? Well, we have a large series of indexes in the back of the book that addresses that very question. And it, it's intended to help teachers and researchers who want to work on projects. So I think something like 17% were children uh, when they were captured. They, they're all adults when they tell their tale when it gets published, and they may even be long dead by the time it's published. But at, at point of capture, and they're on the slave ship as a child, about something like 17%. And uh, about 20% were female, women or girls. And, and that, you know, that's a small minority, right? But in the overall slave trade, only about one third were female. So it's pretty representative as far as that goes. And, and most importantly, in, in real numbers, 20%, that's roughly 100 published accounts by women. And most people, I've seen recent scholarly articles suggest that we have maybe two or three, but, but we don't, we have 100. So in a way, it's a lot, even though women are somewhat underrepresented. Uh, chronologically, the uh, first account, uh, it's, it's the, it, it runs the period, in, it's in the title of the book, 1586 to 1936. So the first account was recorded in 1586 uh, in in New Spain, what is now Ecuador. It doesn't get published until, I think, the late 20th century. But that's how far 
we go back with the recording. And there are a few in the 17th and late 16th centuries. The numbers begin to pick up significantly in the early to mid 18th century. And we have, I think until 1790, about 130 some, something like that, which is a lot. That, that would really surprise most slavery scholars that we have um, approaching uh, 130, by, if you say 17th to 18th century, I think we may be approaching 150. That would really surprise a lot of slavery scholars. The bulk are in the 19th century, and there are a few in the 20th century, people who were captured uh, as children before the slave trade, the transatlantic slave trade ended in 1867. So a few were captured as children in the late 1850s, early 1860s, and lived for a long time and were interviewed in the 19-teens or 30s or something when they were quite old. Are there any themes that you found particularly striking in the different narratives? Um, maybe things that, uh, similarities between certain stories that you found particularly revealing about the experience of people in slavery? I would say my first thought is no, and that's why this collection is so interesting and important because what you're getting is tremendous diversity in these individual experiences. We really do focus on the individual in in this collection. And uh, they're unique, all of them. You have 490 different stories. Um, everyone was on a slave ship. So, yes, that, but we already knew that. I mean, that that's... The question is what happens to people on slave ships. And uh, it's a tremendous diversity of experience even there. Um, resistance was much more widespread and varied uh, than most people would realize. There is a trend in scholarship in recent years among the special of this to stress that there has there was more res resistance on the slave ships than people thought earlier and in different ways. And this sort of contributes to that movement. But what I see is it's much more significant and, and diverse, widespread than anything I've ever read in scholarship on the slave ship experiences. Um, and the rest of it, it it's... You know, it's not a monograph arguing some thesis about what the transatlantic slave trade was was all about. It, it's a, it's a catalog. It's a collection of uh, all of these materials, and so you can study all kinds of things with it. And I've attempted two or three things myself that are pretty interesting and striking. I think studies of what happen to people based on these African voices and hopefully other people will do the same, but it's, it's almost unlimited what you can do with it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. 
Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Are there any narratives featured in it that you found particularly fascinating? Um, or, you know, maybe a, a narrative that if someone is wants to check this book out that you would recommend that they read just to get uh, a sense of what the experience might have been like for for one of the people featured in it? Oh, many, 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 many. Uh, <laughs> if there's one close for a beginner, if you're trying to get hooked on it, you you would want to avoid some of the shorter ones that are just a couple of sentences. Um, you want to come to those after you've already been hooked and you're you're interested in a topic. So maybe you want to study children or something, and and so you want to look at all of them, and including those that are just a couple of sentences to get some help. But I'll just give you one example. I was thinking of this the other day. Uh, a, a man whose uh, European-American name was Thomas Fuller. We don't have his African name. A lot of times we do, and in the catalog, we give the African name first and then what other names they acquired in slavery later. And sometimes it's three or four different names. But for Fuller, all we have is his uh, English name. And he was taken to Virginia from West Africa in the late colonial period, in the 1750s, I believe. Yes. He was quite old in the 1790s when he uh, gave his account such as it was, and it was published. And um, one of the names he acquired was the African calculator. They, they literally called him that. And uh, or some people called him the Virginia calculator. They just, that became one of his names in addition to Thomas Fuller. And he was a mathematical genius. He was enslaved on a plantation um, in Northern Virginia. I believe he was in Georgetown actually. And people began hearing about him and his mathematical capabilities. And Benjamin Rush, the, the famous doctor, enlightened thinker, writer, was in a, a, a group connected to the American Philosophical Society, the um, publishers of the book, actually. And they heard about him, and they went to see him to see what this guy could do. And they talked to him, and they gave him some calculations and they recorded all of his responses and that was published almost immediately and within a few years it was published in various newspapers and formats and we we tracked them all down um so it's not fuller telling about his life in africa or what happened to him on the slave ship he doesn't really even tell about his life in the americas but he responds to their questions and he talks to them and they record it. And he is telling about his life indirectly by performing all these calculations. And um, 
you, there's an anecdote they give there. They, one of the questions they asked him was something like, how many seconds there are in a 12-year period? And in no time at all, he uh, gave them an answer. And they took several minutes themselves to check check it out. And they said, no, you're wrong. You have too many seconds. You're wrong. And Fuller replied, no, you're wrong. You forgot to include leap year. So they recalculated with leap year and found out he, Fuller was exactly right. And he was enslaved on this plantation. I, I, I believe, I can't remember if it was a plantation or in the town of Georgetown. I think it was in the town of Georgetown. So he... he May have been an urban domestic slave, but still, still he was enslaved. And it was an old man, had been there for a long time, been through the revolution, um, and experienced so much, experienced the slave ship. Um, I, there's no demonstrated connection, but there, um, I've seen references in scholarship to an area in West Africa. We know he's from West Africa. We don't we don't know where, but there is a place and a people who are renowned for their mathematical abilities. They it's just what they do, and they emphasize. Maybe he came from that area. I don't know. And uh, sometimes you can. <laughs> have a lot of fun with this kind of work. It's a gruesome subject, but in, in other ways, it's uplifting. You know, who knows? You can speculate wildly. If you saw the movie Hidden Figures, where did the calculators, they called people calculators in the movie as well. Where did they come from? Virginia. Makes me wonder if there's not a connection. Maybe even back to that area in West Africa. Uh, that's wild speculation, but, you know, what the hell? I mean that's that's a that's a fascinating theory. It would be it would be really interesting to see how someone would go about uh, studying something like that. But um, yeah, I, I, I appreciate that that anecdote about Thomas Fuller. It's 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 really interesting. That obviously, you know, hearing these kind of individual stories uh, that you've collected, you know, and seeing these these stories that you've collected, it really just does highlight that you know oftentimes when studying history you know we're looking at the big sweep of things uh, and we forget the individuals that are are involved in the stories yeah. uh, you know what we, we remember that you know the the famous individuals po politically powerful rich people but not the not not that that the just uh, the other people that I either you know people that are oppressed or just everyday uh, right. everyday people uh you know, you, you've mentioned, and, and I think it's also very clear from from the book that you know this is in many ways meant to be a, a sort of educational tool, educational resource, um, or a place that someone who's working on a you know let's say like a, a senior thesis project or a um, or a, a master's degree or really really even a book uh, might find the information in here very useful. Uh, so I, I was wondering if there's any suggestion or any thought that you have to how someone could use 500 African voices in the classroom or, or elsewhere? Right. And I, I can say two things about that. One, you're thinking the way I'm thinking, and I'll give you some examples of, of students I've already had, undergraduate and graduate students, working on it in that way. 
But before I do, I do that, Robert Hansard has a much different way of thinking about it. Uh, he teaching over at Columbia College. He's a lot more tech savvy than I am. He likes to teach and work with students doing audiovisual projects. And he has, he's already had since over a year, his students creating these fascinating audiovisual projects with these African voices. So a student just picks one person, one story that they get interested in, read the material on their lives, and construct. It's 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 like a cartoon in a way, or, or um, but it it's um, and so it takes artistic ability on their behalf. So someone who's more artistically inclined might choose this option, and they just tell their story um, and narrate it themselves, and have these figures and these individuals doing various things, and you're you're seeing how this collection, these voices, or a particular voice, just sort of reached out and grabbed essentially an artist who created this audiovisual material. And uh, we are going to develop a website eventually. Now that the book is out, that's the next big step, and we'll have these uh, audiovisual creations from his students uh, as part of the website whenever we get there. As for me, it's, it's, and students I've worked with, um, just last semester, last fall, I had three students in a research seminar on Atlantic worlds work with these materials and come, come up with some really interesting projects. One of them was about, uh, African first encounters with, uh, with white people, with Europeans, based on the African voices. We have a literature focuses primarily on the 15th and 16th century of first encounters of European explorers moving into Africa or new areas for them in, in the Americas, encountering Native Americans, and what were their very initial impressions. And they're revealing in all kinds of ways. So this is just kind of the converse of that. Get inside the African perspective with their voices and their first descriptions with their first encounters and uh, with with Europeans whenever that might have been and those are very re revealing of the culture and the place uh, from African perspectives as well. My final question is if there is anything else that you're working on uh, or any other project related to this that you are are seeking out to, to also work on? Quite a few, actually. We, we want to develop the website, and it will be become essentially part of a, a relational database linked to other websites on transatlantic slavery, international websites, and there's a large and growing number. Do you know what the website URL is, or is it not been created? Oh, we're not that far along yet. Uh, all we have now is that many of the, um, with the catalog, you get um, uh, a brief bibliographic description. You get a one-paragraph bio 
biography of the African, you get a complete print history of the publication from the first, which dates back to the 18th century in some cases, to the present. And then we have URLs and QR codes that take you to the full text of the account. And whenever we didn't have a full text available, easily available and free on the internet. We don't want people to have to pay money to be able to read these. About half of them you can get through um, Hathi Trust or Internet Archive, various ways, and they are free. The other half were not. So we created a common site at my university, Northern Illinois University, and we have all the texts there. And so that's, I suppose, the beginning of the website for us, but that's all we have. But we, we want to have a full-blown website with all of the material. We have all of the maps, um, the creative work that Robert's students are doing, a lot more images than we already have. And we want to link it to other international uh, transatlantic slavery websites. So if you're interested in someone who came from... Um, say, somewhere in Sierra Leone. You could, uh, you click on that individual, you read all of our information, and you would see a link to other websites that give you a lot more information about Sierra Leone related to the history of transatlantic slavery. So that's one project. Another project is, for me personally, and uh, I... Uh, I haven't heard Robert mention this, but I, I think he will do something along these lines eventually, is I'm writing articles about this, scholarly articles um, arguing this or that. I, I've published one so far, and I've got a draft of another and two or three others that are in the works, so I want to write articles based on on people and information that I'm getting out of this one was about, uh, the one that's published was about uh, Africans appropriating uh, rhetoric of the age of revolutions, of Christianity, of Islam, to critique transatlantic slavery. Uh, there, there, some discussion in literature about whether this happened or, or if it did, who was doing it, was it... it it must have been just elites or something that I found that a lot of people who were in a position to doing, to appropriate revolutionary rhetoric. In other words, to say, well, if if all men are created equal, if freedom is a good thing, then give me my freedom. Slavery is wrong, and you've got me enslaved. So a lot of people did that. Um, and they weren't just elites. They were quite common, ordinary people. Um that the view that it's the people who somehow got out of slavery and then were taken care of by abolitionists or others and lived special, relatively elite lives thereafter, they're there. Um, but uh, there are a lot of ordinary people who never got out of hard times for the rest of their lives that also 
uh, embraced revolutionary rhetoric, for example, and used it to critique slavery. Um, and also, I am writing a monograph um, called Immigrant Voices that's uh, to be a, a synthesis of four centuries of forced and free transatlantic migrations. Uh, and the immigrant voices for the Europeans are letters that they wrote home that have been published or digitized. And then for the Africans, who until about 1820 were the majority of, of all the transatlantic migrants since Columbus, um, I use the, this collection of African voices for that. Though this all sounds like, like wonderful and, and valuable projects. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for being a guest on the New Books Network. The, the uh, book is 500 African Voices, a catalog of published accounts by African enslaved the transatlantic slave trade from 1586 to 1936 from the American Philosophical Society Press. So thank, thank you so you much. Very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you.